Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the final month of the baseball regular season and the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell, and we're going to sit back and talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds and the weeks that could have been over the last seven days. And alongside my resident Reds expert, Mark Donahue. Mark, good evening. How was your Labor Day holiday, but? It was fine. Played a little golf and uh, watched the Reds win a big game today and lamented that this was the week that was for the Indians, and it wasn't. And we can get into more detail about that, but a week ago today, uh, the Indians had every possibility. I mean, they, they really did have every possibility to, to get back into the race and actually you know, be in there and compete into the final weeks, but was not to be this week. Well, should I ask what your handicap is on the golf course? <coughs> well, uh, all depends who I'm playing, but uh, <laughs> no, I'm about a 12, 13, something like that. Okay, well, you would you would destroy me. <clears throat> anyway, let's get back to uh, the, the subject at hand tonight, which is the Indians and the Reds, and you can join us here. We're going to have our Ask Us segment coming up in just a little bit, and you can send in your questions to Ask Us or DMitch at ultimatesportstalk.com. You can also send us a tweet at OHBBCoHost. Mark, a couple of big stories coming out of the Wigwam and the Reds camp this week, and I guess the first one we're going to get to is Justin Masterson. He left the game this afternoon against the Baltimore Orioles, which was a 7-2 to loss to the Orioles this afternoon, which, by the way, was the same uh, score that the Reds won by today over the Cardinals, and we're going to get into that here in just a little bit. But Justin Masterson had to leave the game in the second inning. The Tribe Ace suffered what is termed to be a bruised rib cage, left side of his rib cage. He will have an MRI tomorrow, but nobody, according to Twitter tonight, <laughs> and Paul Hoynes from the Cleveland Plain Dealer, uh, is saying anything else other than it is a strained left rib cage. And for a pitcher, Mark, that can be devastating. That could be a season-ending injury. Yeah, it's it's kind of strange when when Johnny Cueto had his issues this year, uh, it was the right either lat or rib cage, depending on the injury. It's kind of strange that a right-handed pitcher like Masterson has a left uh, rib injury, left side. Uh, you know, it's kind of, it, the, the strain would not appear to be on that side; it would appear to be on the on the right side, unless he was bruised in another way. You know, not not pitching, but just hit it on something or was hit by a pitch or something. I don't know, but it's kind of a strange injury for a right-hand pitcher. Well, I'm going to be anxious to see what happens with him, of course, being the ace of the staff. If the Indians have any shot of uh, winning this wild card position, right now they're four games behind Tampa in the wild card, and they're one game behind Baltimore after losing today. They're 72-65 and 65 overall, but as you said, Mark, it was a week of lost opportunity. They were 1-5 on the week. They lost three straight to Atlanta. Then they lost two straight to Detroit and won Sunday's game when Mike Aviles hit a grand slam in the top of the ninth inning, and the uh, Indians won that game. So they went four and six in their last ten ball games. I'll tell you what. I, I asked you this question off the air last week, Mark. How does Atlanta do it? I mean, I watched them play three games. I haven't seen them a lot this year. 
But Atlanta is a very devastating ball club. They've, they've got the best record in baseball right now and the largest lead of any division leader. I know they've got a stupendous bullpen, but boy, oh boy, how are they winning games the way they are? They just score enough runs to win. They're, they're, if you check their batting averages, they're relatively low, and they at one time, and not long ago, leading the league in strikeouts. But they have a lot of power. They have a lot of home runs, a lot of extra base hits, and their pitching is good enough. But I tell you, even though they have the best record in baseball, if the Reds go through the wild card slot, which I think they're going to end up being, and they, and they win the wild card, they would end up playing the Braves because the Braves have the best record. And I tell you, I'd rather play the Braves than I would the Dodgers. <laughs> I think the Dodgers, I mean, the Dodgers are so good that they remind me of the Big Red Machine or you know, one of those power-laden teams with great pitching uh, that we, you really don't see much anymore. You don't see teams that are just heads and shoulders above the rest of the league. But right now, the Dodgers are that team. Yeah, they're playing some outstanding baseball. But I've got to give Don Mattingly credit for what he did with Yasiel Puig last week when he benched him after those two fly balls that he caught and the way that he caught them and then didn't break up a double play on Wednesday, and he just pulled him right out of the ball uh, ball game and uh, said that somebody else gave them a better opportunity to win that night. He's trying to nip this stuff in the bud right away with Puig. Yeah, and I think what's going to happen, uh, you're going to have some of those guys on the Dodgers, who have, they have some real veterans on that team, and it won't be Mattingly, but it'll be one of those veterans pull him aside and say, look, clown, uh, we don't play ball that way around here, not in this league. And I, I think they'll get his attention. It, it, but it, it's much more uh, impactful when it comes from a teammate than it does the manager. Well, and and you look at that thing that they've got going out there out in L.A., and Puig, he's really kind of getting, and I hate to say this, but he's getting the Johnny Manziel disease where he's getting so much publicity and people are patting him on his back and wanting his autograph and wanting this and that from him that you can't help when you're a 21, 22-year-old guy to think that you're on top of the world and nothing is going to hurt you and you can act the way that you want. But, you know, in Manziel's case, he's acting like a spoiled brat. In Puig's case, he's pretty much acting just the way a 21-year-old would that isn't getting any kind of direction, and that's what Don Mattingly is trying to give him. Yeah, and I think he's doing a pretty good job of it. I, Puig is one of the most amazing talents that, to come into the league in, in really decades. He's he's an unbelievable physical specimen, speed, power, great arm. He's a five-tool player, you name it. This guy could be a superstar for years and years. And I think you're right. They're trying to nip this in the bud now. And uh, he's perfectly placed in L.A. with all the glitz and, uh, and all the hype out there. But there, there'll be somebody who will get him uh, and, and tap him on the shoulder and, and sit him down and, I think, explain the facts of life to him. But, um, you know, the same thing, to some degree, happened with Chapman. But Chapman is in Cincinnati, Ohio, not Los Angeles, California. So there's a big difference there in just the, the surroundings, if nothing else. But... You know, Puig is going to be around for a while, and I think the Dodgers, as I said, they I think they're light years better than the, than the Braves. Okay, two stories came out of Cincinnati this week before we get into what the Reds did during the week. And the, the first one is 
before we get to the biggest one, I guess, is Billy Hamilton was brought up when the rosters expanded yesterday. What are they going to do with Hamilton, and what are their plans? I don't think they're going to do much with Hamilton. This is a way to you know, get him acclimated to the big leagues, sitting on the bench for a month. He'll get in there to play, pinch run. Uh, he might get a couple of bats, but I don't think they're looking to him to be their savior between now and the end of the year. At any rate, it's 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 good to have him on the team. He did hit 287 the second half of the year in AAA, which uh, you know that that that's that's a good sign. And he's the kind of kid that works hard, and he's only 22. I mean, this kid's only 22 years old. So I think by next year you're not going to replace uh, Chu with him, but he will give you a dimension that Chu doesn't have, which is a lot of speed. And he's probably Chu's equal in defense right now. He's a lot faster than Chu. Uh, but Chu is having a great year, and the Reds have a big decision to make. Do they do they you know write the, the big check and keep him in, around for a couple more years or not? And I don't think they're going to find out enough about Hamilton this year to make that decision based on September. What do you think it will take to uh, get Chu? Well, he's represented by Boris. And he's had a great year so far, and I, I don't see him, you know, giving the Reds a, a discount of any kind because he's just uh, he's too valuable right now. I mean, he he could be the difference with a lot of a lot of teams next year that need a leadoff hitter, and he's 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 a good guy in the clubhouse. Everybody likes him a lot. The fans like him, and. You know, I, I just think he's going to be a real good player for somebody next year, but I, I don't think it's going to be for the Reds. Here's the problem that I always thought Chu had. He's a leadoff man, like you just said, with not a lot of speed. You don't like your leadoff men being quarter outfielders, and that's really where Chu is best suited for, is right or left field, not center field. And you don't give a $14, $15, 16000000 million contract to lead off men in today's game, especially those that are, have to play a corner outfield spot, which is supposed to be your power uh, positions. And Boris, I think, found that out with Michael Bourne. Bourne did not get the big contract that Boris wanted. He wanted him to go to the Mets, he wanted him to go to the Dodgers, and he eventually ended up with the Indians for $11 million a year. I, I think he's going to be pushing it if he thinks Chu is going to get more than 11 or $12 million a year. I thought, I thought uh, Bourne only got $6.5 million for two, for, uh, $11 million for two years. No, he got $11 million. He got a $44 million contract for four years. Hmm. I don't know where I got that lower number. Yeah, he, he, got, he got a lot higher. And Swisher was uh, just a little bit higher, although Swisher got the fifth year. And Bourne only got the four years. Um, but the big thing with the Mets was they did not want to give up the first-round draft pick for him, whereas the Indians didn't have to give that one up. They had already given it up for Swisher. Hmm. Well, I, I think Boris may have learned his lesson. I, I don't know. I mean, Chu is, what, 32 years old? Right. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody's going to sign him to a six- or seven-year contract. He doesn't have a lot of speed, and I think you're right. I think he would be a great left fielder, just a great left fielder. And he could play another four or five years. But uh, he's certainly not going to fit into the Reds' plans. I mean, the Reds have 
a number of options in left field for next year. And if, if Hamilton can come through, uh, you know, he, he, he can uh, he can be replaced. And that's a guy who's hitting 20, he'll probably hit 22, 23 home runs this year, drive in 55, 60 runs, hit 280. He's up to, he's up to 290 now. So he's had a great year. He's been worth the money. And if the Reds make the playoffs, I think it's going to be because of Chew. Well, Mark, okay, in the infamous words of Manager Brown in Major League, if you win one game, it's a win. If you win two games, that's called a winning streak. And I think for the first time this year, the Reds have a winning streak against the Cardinals now, and both of them were against Wainwright. It's unbelievable. Um, in, in the last, let me see, he pitched two innings. It actually goes back further than this. In the last eight innings, that he pitched up until the, the sixth inning of today, the previous eight innings against the Reds, he had given up at least one run in eight consecutive innings against Cincinnati. The last two starts, he gave up nine earned runs last week, and he gave up six earned runs today in, in five, what, six innings, I guess. So that's 15 runs he's given up to the Reds in eight innings. <laughs> and against the rest of the league, he has an ERA something like 2.28. So I don't know why. This is one of those strange things about baseball. I would hate to face Wainwright any time. I don't care how many times the Reds beat him up. I'd be afraid the next time the guy will throw a two-hitter against him, against them, and he's very capable of doing that. Mark, you know, you talk about strange occurrences. The strange occurrence this year has been in the Central Division where the Reds can't beat the Cardinals. The Pirates can't beat the Reds, and the the Pirates can't lose to the Cardinals. Yeah, it is strange. It, it's really about matchups, and it, it really depends on who who you're playing and when you're playing them. And the Reds, really, they've had really good luck against Pittsburgh this year, but there were three other games the Reds should have won against Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh came back in two ninth innings and pulled them out of their rear ends to win the game. And then another game, the Reds threw it away with a couple of errors. But they, they really have been dominating Pittsburgh. But the difference is that Pittsburgh's hitting. The Reds' pitching stops Pittsburgh's hitting. But Reds' pitching has not been able to stop Cardinal hitting. And that's been the difference. The pitchings have been about the same. All three teams have good pitching. Maybe the strongest pitching is with Pittsburgh right now. But the well, Cardinals, Latos. Go ahead, Mark. I was going to say, you know, the, the difference may be right now, Latos is coming into his own. And I don't know if you saw the game today, but he just destroyed those guys. They, they didn't have a chance against him. And it, it was one of the more dominating performances I've seen this year. And if this is what the Reds are going to be getting from him over the next. And people forget this guy's only 25 years old. He's 25, and if they get Cueto back next year, it's pretty exciting what you could do with a rotation when you have Homer Bailey, Matt Latos, and Johnny Cueto as your top three, and then don't forget Sim Grani uh, in there, and Mike Leake. That is a tremendous rotation, and that is absently absent. Uh, uh, it's absent Bronson Royal. What do you think this uh, acquisition that the Pirates got of Justin Morneau will do for them? Not much. I, I don't think he is going to be a guy who's going to 
be a difference maker. I mean, over what they had at first base already. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think he's a good player, and uh, nothing wrong with it. I, I don't see him making a big difference. Do you? I, I think he's going to be. I think he needed a change of scenery. His problem has been in Minnesota the last couple of years. They've been down in the doldrums, and I, I don't know. I just get the idea that this is one of these guys that needed something, a, a kick in the butt to get him going. Now, I think long term, he's the kind of guy who could hit 290, 300 for you next year, and it really helped your lineup top to bottom. But I, I, I don't see him. In the, in the month of September, hitting eight home runs or ten home runs and driving in 20, 25 runs. I, I don't see that coming from him. And if you don't get that, I'm not sure. Uh, who was the, the left-hand hitter who was playing first base for them? For, I've forgotten his name already for the Pirates. Uh, but, yeah. Wasn't that Jones? Yes, Jones. Uh, he's not the player Morneau is, but he's not that much worse. So the difference is what do you pick up? Uh, in the short term, and I, I'm not sure they picked up, but Baxford, the, um, the, the Milwaukee closer that went to St. Louis, that was a good move. I think the Cardinals picked up a good guy there who could help them down the stretch. I mean, he's still throwing 95 miles an hour, and talk about a guy who needed to get out of town. That was Axford out of Milwaukee. Well, another guy that I thought was a great pickup was the Dodgers getting Michael Young. You and I have talked about that for the last two months about the Reds trying to get him, and the Dodgers came in and pulled it off. Yeah, I don't know what they gave up. I don't know the – I heard the name, but it didn't mean anything to me. I don't, I don't know the Dodger organization that much. Apparently there was a lot of cash involved, which the Dodgers have plenty of. But uh, I think Michael Young probably would have had a greater impact on the Reds or the Cardinals or the, or the uh, Pirates than he does the Dodgers. They have such a tremendous talent pool out there. I don't know what he brings over and above what they already have. He would have made a huge difference to the Reds. Uh, Todd Frazier hitting 230 uh, is a guy that the Reds really needed to send down earlier this year to get a stroke back. So now you're stuck with him for the rest of the year, and he'll, he'll hit 230 the rest of the year. Mark, of course, another thing that happened was the blow-up by Brandon Phillips that the media is, uh, I think, really kind of overblowing. But it happened with uh, one of our guests that we had earlier in the year, the Cincinnati Inquirer new reporter, Trent Rosencrans. And, um, you know, a, a lot of things happened there. Why don't you kind of give a synopsis of what happened, and I've got a cut from Major League Baseball Network on what they, their opinion of what happened. Well, there was a press conference before the game the other night. Uh, I forget what game it was. I think it was in Milwaukee. And Dusty was going through his normal 20-minute press conference with the reporters. And Trent Rosencrans was in there. And Brandon walked into the meeting and started you know, cussing at uh, Rosencrans. And Rosencrans, what he had done, he had tweeted that Brandon Phillips had gone to Dusty, and with Dusty's approval, now understand this, Dusty gave him his approval to do this, that that Brandon said, I will be more valuable to this team if I hit higher in the lineup, like second or third. And and Dusty said, well, that's fine. That's your opinion. So Rosencrantz heard about this and said, oh, great. We're going to move a guy who has an on-base percentage of, what, 294 or something, to number two, 
where the current guys hitting number two are hitting 284. The implication being it's not going to be an improvement if Brandon moves up there. And so Brandon came in and started blasting <laughs> Rosencrans for his short-sightedness. And I'll tell you why it was short-sighted. Because Brandon's been hitting number four where he's not paid to get on base. He's paid to drive in runs. And he's been doing it. He has 99 RBIs already. So we'll probably end up with 110, 115 RBIs. So rather than admitting, not admitting, but giving him credit for doing what he was supposed to do, Rosencrantz, I thought, gave him a cheap shot. And Brandon, as you will hear, and our audience will hear, did not take kindly to it. No, he really didn't. And Harold Reynolds, Brian Kenny of the Major League Baseball Network, and Joel Sherman of the New York Post discuss what happened with Brandon Phillips and Trent Rosencrantz last week. In this case, it was the guy actually putting it on his Twitter feed. He's only got like 12,000 followers, right? It's not like, hey, there's the newspaper, open it up, wow, this guy ripped me. He merely put in that his on-base was lower than Todd Frazier's. Is it warranted or not warranted? Well, it seems like, you know, like, like Brandon Phillips blew up at him, and I sorry called him a fat. And was, you know, those are opinions. This happened to be a fact. We can argue about what the value of having a 310 on-base percentage in the second spot is versus having 95 RBIs. I actually am one of those people who favors having some muscle in the number two spot in the lineup mm -hmm. over maybe having 10 extra points on-base percentage. So, you know, we can argue that, but that's an actual fact. The fact that Brandon Phillips blew up at a fact seems to me that he is either really touchy on the subject or there's just a general touchiness around the team right now in a pennant race. Yeah, but what about... That was a fact, but what if the fact is put in on purpose? Well, all facts are put in on purpose. What does that mean? No, but I'm <laughs> because he, he put that in there knowing he's going to get something out of it. There's I, no, and you guys can argue with me all you want, but it doesn't say, hey, they moved Brandon Phillips to the two spot. What was wrong with that? Harold, on, we've known each other a long time that predates this show. I'm telling you on our relationship, I've written thousands and thousands of news stories and columns Never once was the motivation behind one of them. You know what? I'm going to get a real rise out of this guy. If you're doing your job right, you know, the New York Post has 600,000 subscribers, you know, people who read the newspapers. It's more now on the Internet. You know, you're trying to inform and entertain a group of people. I, don't, I couldn't care less what the players think, what Brandon Phillips thinks. If I wrote a story about who I thought should be the number two hitter in, the, in a lineup, I don't care what Brandon Phillips thinks. I only care what I think. And am, am I able to execute a column that makes that point well? His obligation is to his readers, not to the player. And if he got personal with the player, yeah, he's out of line. But he did not get personal yeah, with the player. He put what his on base was. And just as he would probably tweet, and he actually <coughs> later that night, he said, base hit, you know, by BP, first time in the two-hole. Base hit, he's two for two. This right. lineup is really clicking. So he, those are facts, too, right? And Todd Frazier could take it like, oh, wow, I'm getting buried. Because Todd Frazier, by the way, got buried, got put in a six-hole. What about him? All, all I'm saying is this. I do think that in the world of Twitter, when it's a snippet, he didn't write a whole column and say, hey, they're moving Brandon Phillips to the two spot. I know he's got 95 RBIs, and here's what Dusty's trying to do with that. No, it was a snippet of they moved a 310 on base for a 320 on base or whatever the heck it was. But it was a snippet at a point that was going to be resonated as something that people are going to But you're, you're, you're now assuming you know point. what was on that person's mind. And no, I think that's I'm always a dangerous thing. You know, again, it's a fact. If I write on my Twitter feed right now, George Washington was the first president of the United States, it's the same fact. It's a fact as much as whatever Brandon Phillips on base percentage is. Facts 
are facts, Mark, but facts are also facts when you put them into the proper connotation. <coughs> or you put, put them in the improper connotation. And I think that's what Rosencrantz did. Uh, he, he could have made a statement without an accusation. And I think he, he was implying that Brandon had not done his job, which is not true. He could have said, for instance, well, had Brandon, in, in, in the four spot, you don't expect a high on base percentage because you want that guy swinging at pitches. You don't want him taking pitches and walking. You want him driving in runs. And Brandon had done that. Had he prefaced what he said <coughs> by saying Brandon has done his job this year, look, he's got 99 RBIs, 95 at the time, I don't think this would have been an issue. But the implication was that he had not done his job. But, in fact, he had done exactly what he was, what Dusty and the team wanted him to do. And Brandon Phillips is an underrated talent in that he could hit leadoff, second, third, fourth, fifth, and be productive, but a different kind of production in every one of those slots. Yeah, I, I agree with you, but I think one of the one of the key things that was said there by Joel Sherman is I think the problem with today's media is they are not in it to report the news any longer. They're in it to entertain. They're in it to just simply give you the wow factor. And if you don't have the wow factor in an article or on a radio show or your Twitter account or whatever it is that you're reporting on, then you're bored, you're bland, and you're not entertaining enough to continue to have the money rolling in that these conglomerates want when they hire you to do a show. Well, if, if Trent Rosencrans is trying to win a popularity contest against Brandon Phillips in Cincinnati, he's going to lose. <laughs> so I would be careful if I was him, uh, about what he says, because uh, a lot more people like Brandon than they like Trent. Well, and, and that's absolutely the case. And, and I find it, you know, very entertaining that, you know, Mark, I've said this before, and I said it on my Thursday night show. I would really like sports reporters, and I want to get your opinion on this, <laughs> to go cover Washington for about two months. I think we would get more and better reporting out of Washington, sending our sports reporters there to cover Congress, than we would than, than we do now. Because all these sports reporters seemed interested in doing is pulling the TMZ National Enquirer type of reporting and digging into each and every athlete and finding out what their deep dark secrets are. Well, you know, it's interesting. I remember you know, back in the day with, with a guy like Jim Murray, who was the just a great writer for the L.A. Times. He was my favorite writer of all time. And, and he, he wrote about the sport without going after <clears throat> the players. And I think the, the, some of these writers, and many of them, I mean, I've met a lot of these guys, and they don't have a fundamental understanding of the game. They, they've never played the game. And so the, some of the questions I've heard are embarrassingly stupid. And I can understand a player, and I don't know how Dusty does it. He has a press conference every day. And these guys ask the dumbest 
questions. And I, I admire him and other managers who don't just stand up and go over and cold cock one of these guys and say, that's the 15th time you've asked the same damn question. Either get a better question or get smarter or something. But they have to take it because that's their job. But I, I wish we'd have a higher quality of writer than a lot of teams have. And there are some good ones out there, believe me. I mean, I, I, there are some good writers that, that do a good job. But many of them are <laughs> at the low end of the literary totem pole, and it certainly shows with the questions they ask. Yeah, and it's not just in baseball, though, Mark. It, it's in every every aspect <coughs> of sports. I agree with you. And, and, you know, Brandon Phillips has been on his best behavior. He, he's been nothing but a teammate and, and a team player for the Cincinnati Reds, which was one of the big things that the Indians said he wasn't when they let him go. Eric Wedge was the one that prompted that. He did not think that Brandon Phillips was a team player, and he could not have been more wrong about Brandon Phillips. And And what Phillips is doing is trying to lead this team, and I'm not quite sure. I, I, I guess what I'm saying, Mark, is I think Phillips may have taken this opportunity to may have try, to try to light a fire under this ball club. Yeah, he, he may have. And uh, today, uh, today there was a ground ball to second base, and it was kind of a high-hopping ground ball. It wasn't hit that hard. Brandon Phillips came in, but it was clearly a ball, as Marty Brenneman said, that 99.99% of the second baseman would field with their glove. Brandon came in nonchalantly, barehanded the ball, and threw the guy out. This was a this was a ground ball to second, and it was hit reasonably hard. He and it, it, he acted like he had done that a hundred thousand times. It was the most incredible thing, and and the the announcers said, you know what, you see him every day, and the amazing becomes commonplace. It just becomes commonplace. I've never you and I've had this debate before. Who was the best defensive second baseman of all time? But I guarantee you. If you went back and looked at his chances, every one of them that he's had over the last two or three years, it's nothing short of remarkable how talented this guy is. And the thing I think separates him from other second basemen is his arm. He's got a shortstop arm. He's got a cannon for an arm. So he does things that no other second baseman can do. And I know Alomar's your guy, and he's a great second baseman. He was a great second baseman. But I've just never seen a player command his position defensively like Brandon Phillips does. Well, I know the big problem that he had in Cleveland was was Eric Wedge, but I think the problem that he really ran into is the year before Milton Bradley. <laughs> Milton Bradley was a, a malcontent, to say the least, and that was one of Eric Wedge's, I think it was his first year or two as manager of the Indians, and he did not want to go through the same situation, and he basically compared Brandon Phillips to Milton Bradley, which today he couldn't have been more wrong. Back then, he may have had a reason for doing it, and hey, I wasn't by there. I wasn't in the situation, but you know what? We've talked about this before also, Mark. When a player is traded or cut, sometimes a light bulb goes off above their head. And maybe Brandon Phillips was a malcontent, and it took him 
being cut by the Indians and going to Cincinnati to become the player and the person that he is today. I remember the first games he played for the Reds when he came over. You know, he had a reputation of being a malcontent and a troublemaker and all that stuff. And I tell you, from the day he got to the Reds, I don't know, maybe it was Wedge, I don't know, he couldn't have been more of a team player. But more importantly, the thing that separates him from even other guys in the Reds team is his relationship with the fans. It, it's re, He is the most beloved Reds player right now on the team. Far, far, far more than Joey Votto. Uh, even though Joey has a lot more talent. But there's nobody in the team that the fans like more or nobody, there's no Reds player that spends more time autographing things for Reds fans. And uh, he, it's interesting, he's only, I think he's 12 RBIs away from setting the all-time team record for most RBIs by a second baseman for the Reds. And he is going to have a lot of Joe Morgan's records before it's, he's all done. I mean, he's going to probably have every one. He, he won't have stolen bases, but that, that may be the only one he doesn't have. Well, and this is Joe Morgan weekend for the Reds this weekend. Mark, you know, I want to ask you this before we go to break. Would Rosengrand's been, his attitude been any different had it been Joey Votto moving to the second spot in the batting order and Phillips going to third? I don't know. Um, to me, it, it just seemed like a cheap shot at, at Phillips based on the the assumption that you would expect the same on-base percentage out of your number four guy as you would number two. That's that's a, a basic fundamental mis, miscalculation because you, you you want your number four guy uh, to be driving in runs, and that's what Brandon did. Now, would you rather have him have uh, 50 points higher on-base percentage and 50 less RBIs or 20, even 20 less RBIs? No. You want your RBI guy number four and Brandon's going to probably have 110, 112 RBIs this year. So that's what I thought was just stupid analysis on Rosencrantz's part, and it just didn't need to be done. It, it just sounded like a a sarcastic, forgive my French, smart-ass kind of thing to say uh, when, when a guy who is hitting 280 and 18 home runs and 99 RBIs playing great defense, what, what are you talking about? Well, we're going to get into more of this in just a little bit in our Ask Us segment. We're going to also want to bring up Terry Francona and how I think his greatest strength as a manager may also be his greatest weakness. And we're going to do that right after this timeout. For the first time since the death of Dylan Michael, Cincinnati is back in the hunt for a pennant. To help get there, they sent two minor league pitchers to Seattle today for former all-star pitcher Randy McDonald and minor league slugger Matt Wolf. McDonald had Tommy John surgery last year and is healthy could greatly enhance Cincinnati's rotation. Little is known about Wolf, although his stats suggest he may help the team offensively. Last at Bat, a novel by Mark Donahue. Available at Joseph A. Beth, Barnes & Noble, and Books and & Company. And you can also get a copy of Mark's book right here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. Just click on the Order My Copy Now on the right side of the homepage and get your copy today. Hey, by the Mark, way, David. You know, uh, yes. David, uh, just, uh, just FYI, um, uh, we are going to be filming our first scenes of Last at Bat uh, at the Dragon Stadium, Dayton Dragon Stadium, on uh, September 16th. Uh, they're calling them uh, qualifying shots, 
and uh, background shots of the stadium. So it's exciting that we're actually going to have film in the camera and begin is, uh, filming at least one scene down there. So we're excited about that. Oh, great. That, that sounds like fun. And then uh, the majority of the filming will be done next year? I guess so. They're, they're going to be doing uh, some filming in September and October. I don't know how much they're going to get done. I know they're going to do a lot of studio work uh, between now and next spring. Uh, we just got started too late to get it all done this year, I think. Uh, we, it's possible, but uh, I, I just don't think we're going to be able to do it. Okay. Well, we'll keep everybody up to date on that. Mark, you know, I, I, I want to preface my comments here about Terry Francona uh, by saying that I do not think in any way, shape, form, or fashion this guy is a bad manager. But I'm far from it. I think he's the main reason the Indians are where they are. But I do want to say this. I think his greatest strength as a manager is the fact that he takes every day, one at a time, and he puts so much trust and faith in his ball players that he will stick with them through thick and thin, uh, through slumps, through injuries, and he really gives them the extra mile to do what they can do as a ball player. And I think at times, Mark, that is probably his greatest weakness as a manager also because as you've heard me say before I think the the best manager for Manny Ramirez was always Mike Hargrove and where Manny went wrong was when he went to Boston and he was given basically free reign over everything and I think Francona had a lot to do with that because he thought as long as Manny was doing what Manny could do on the baseball field, and it wasn't just Manny, it was a lot of other players, which eventually culminated in the incident that led to Francona leaving Boston with the guys drinking beer and eating chicken in the locker room uh, during a pennant race late in the 2011 season. And I can see where he still is doing that to a certain extent with the Indians. For example, with uh, Esdrubal Cabrera and Carlos Santana. Esdrubal Cabrera has the worst, um, how do I want to put this, focus during games that he feels don't mean a lot. And he tends to lose his focus and lose his mental edge at the worst possible times. Uh, one point being the first game against the Miami Marlins. Uh, when the Indians were down there, they were playing a three-game series, and they had a three-game series coming up with Detroit the following week, and I knew that was going to be a trap series. And Cabrera lost his focus and let the first two balls that were hit to him just go right underneath his glove, and they were errors, and the Indians eventually lost that game. And then last week in, against Atlanta, uh, he basically blew what most Little League catchers know, that a foul tip into the glove, and if the catcher catches it, it's a live ball. And Cabrera just stopped in between first and second, thinking that it was a foul ball, and he started to go back to first base. Well, he violated two rules there. First is, is that, of course, a foul tip into the catcher's glove is a live ball, and the second being you don't stop unless the umpire tells you. And, you know, Cabrera keeps 
being given these opportunities by Francona without any repercussions such as what Mattingly did to Puig or what Hargrove had done to Ramirez over his early years and his career with the Indians. And, and like I said, I think maybe I'm looking at this and I'm seeing that maybe Francona's greatest strength may be his, his biggest weakness as a manager. Yeah, I think that the the jury is still out relative to analyzing Francona's approach with the Indians. But and I don't mean this as a as a dig to to Indian fans at all or the Indians team, but the Indians and this is the the beauty of Major League Baseball. Over 162 games, you find out who is good and who isn't as a team. Right now, the Cleveland Indians just aren't good enough to win the Central Division. Now, I think they may be a year or two away, and I think as the Tigers age and the Indians improve, I think the Indians are the heir apparent in the Central. Right now, they're not. So I'm not sure, and, I'm, and, and Francona and Indians management, they're, they're certainly smart enough to look at that team on paper and say, you know, yeah, we're going to win more than we lose this year, but we're not going to win the division. They still might get in the playoffs, but uh, <clears throat> right now, Francona, I think, is feeling out this team, determining who he wants there next year, and I think Cabrera, it's, it's interesting, we were talking about Brandon Phillips, uh, there are certain similarities there in terms of the talent, the ability, and, and all those things, but also maybe concentration. Phillips did not have it when he first came up, and, and maybe Cabrera's going through that, that period. Um, you know, the shortstop for the Cubs reminds me of him, the, the same thing. Tremendous talent, and uh, the guy, you know, just like he goes to sleep out there sometimes. So it's not unusual, but that is the difference between a real pro and a guy that's in the league two or three years and then gone. <clears throat> yeah, and my gut feeling is is that Cabrera and Chris Perez will both be gone at the end of the year. I think during the winter meetings you're going to see these guys being packaged. But you know what? When you think back to the Boston, and, I, I, and I'm going to wrap this up with this thought, when you think back to the Boston team that Francona had, a, a lot of people think, you know, okay, yeah, that team was, was uh, functioned by Ramirez, Ortiz, and Pedroia. you got to remember, David Ortiz was cut by Minnesota, and he was picked up by Boston in a waiver deal at the end of the year that basically was just a throwaway. They did not expect David Ortiz to turn into the ball player that he turned into. And what I'm saying is there's a lot of luck that goes about when you start uh, putting together a baseball team. Yes, and I think it takes some time. I mean, you can count on one hand the number of times that a manager has gone into a situation and won his first year. It, it just doesn't happen. Normally, number one, when you get a new manager, it's because the team wasn't doing well the year before and you fired the existing manager. So to have somebody step in and just take a team to the pennant, it hasn't happened very often. And I think Francona is great for the Indians. He's the right guy. And I, that patience you talk about, I think it's a, a virtue. And I think the Indians' management are trying to build something positive for the long term. But I, they're not there yet. They're, they just don't have the talent. And I don't care who you brought in. They were, I don't think they were going to win this year. Uh, and yet, here we are in September, and they're certainly not out of the playoff hunt. 
No, they're definitely not. Hey, it's time for our Ask Us segment. <coughs> if you've got a question, just submit your emails to askus or dmedge at ultimatesportstalk.com, or you can send us a tweet at ohbbcohost. Mark, PR14 asks us tonight, why does it seem like the Dodgers and the Pirates are going after the pennant and the Reds are sitting doing nothing? Good question, and I think part of it is money. Uh, the, the Dodgers have enough money. I mean, they're going to draw close to 3 million people out there this year, and uh, they have so that the television rights are out there are unbelievable. So they can go out and get whoever they want. So I would not compare the Reds to the Dodgers. It's, it's apples and oranges. But I would compare them to the Pirates. And the Pirates went out and got three pretty good players. Uh, to enhance their their roster going into September, and the Reds brought up a bunch of rookies. That's the difference. And I, I think if this team does not win, if the Reds don't win, uh, Walt Jockety has a lot of questions uh, that are going to be asked of him, like why didn't you do something when this team had a chance? And it's interesting. There are basically five teams in uh, in competition here uh, to make the wild card or win a division uh, in the central and in the wild card actually and you have Pittsburgh that in September and August won 14 and lost 15 the Cardinals were 17 and 14 the Reds of the three teams that are in contention are 17 and 12 they actually have the best record in the division since August 1st Washington has even a better record 18 and 11 although uh, I gave them a win tonight, and I just found out with two out in the ninth inning, nobody on base, Philadelphia has tied that game in the bottom of the eighth inning. So they're either going to be 17 and 11 or 18 and 11, uh, or 18 and 12. And Arizona's 13 and 16. So no team since August has played any better than the Reds. And I think Jockety sees that statistic as easily as I saw it. And he might just think he has enough. So you are really rolling dice. You better have enough. You better win it. Because the Reds could have gone out and picked up some people who could have helped that team over the hump. But uh, uh, he's, 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 <laughs> he's a gambler. And uh, Pittsburgh right now is a better team than they were two days ago. Mark, why is it over the last couple of years when the Indians didn't make a move, at the trading deadline, everybody blamed the ownership. Uh, Chris Antonetti was basically blame-free because everybody blamed the ownership, including me, that the ownership was not going to go out and spend any money. Why is it different down in Cincinnati? Why does Bob Castellini <coughs> seem to fly under the radar when it comes to anybody putting blame at his feet? Because I believe everybody around here is under the impression that that Walt Jockety is the he's the director of baseball operations. He runs that. Uh, they know that Jockety runs a, a very successful fruit company. That's what he does. And he, I don't think he has ever taken a position like Steinbrenner did with the Yankees, where he makes the decisions. He does not. And he, Bob is a very nice guy, and he's he, but he's smart enough to know let his baseball operation guys run it. And Jockety does run it. And as I said, I think he just took a chance. And if the Reds prevail, that will have been the right move because you're not uh, depleting your, your farm system. But if they don't win, 
uh, I can tell you it's going to be a long winter because people are going to say, why didn't you do something when this team had a chance to put this thing away more than once? Let's go back to our Ask Us segment. Casey Mack asks us tonight about the Reds. Mark, why do the Cardinals seem to have such a domination over Cincinnati? Well, hold your breath because there's three games left. And if the Reds were to sweep the, the remaining three games, it's going to be 9-10, and 10, the record against the Cardinals. These things are ebb and flows. Uh, I think the Reds are a better team than the Cardinals right now. I think they have better pitching, better bullpen. The Cardinals have unbelievable hitting. And i, I got to tell you, the Cardinals are doing something this year. I don't think they will do again next year. Their statistics in hitting with runners in scoring position is unbelievable. It's like 100 points higher than the next team in Major League Baseball, not just the Central Division or the National League. It is un- incredible what they've done. Now, that's a tribute to their hitters. I, I, I can grant you that, but there's a lot of good hitters out there, but these guys have been unconscious this year going out there and hitting with runners in scoring position and, and, and hitting with two out. And I just don't think that's going to happen next year. I think that lineup can be pitched to. And right now, it's interesting when you read the blurbs from Cardinal fans about what's happening to the Cardinals and the fact that they're 17 and 14, which isn't all that bad since August, but the pitching staff uh, with Wainwright getting lit up again, and this is the third or fourth time in the last month he's been lit up, uh, they really think that this pitching staff's in deep trouble. And right now... Cardinal fans are more afraid of the Reds than they are the Pirates. I'm not sure I agree with that, but that's what they're saying. Well, and I'm not sure if you have this stat or know this stat, but I believe I heard it over the weekend. Alan Craig is hitting something like 465 this year with two outs and runners in scoring position. Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, that's unconscious, and it's not going to happen again. Uh, and he's he's a good hitter. He's certainly not a Hall of Fame player by any, by any stretch of the imagination, but sometimes that happens. A hitter will just get into a groove in a year, and next year he might hit 210 in the same situations. So I, not that, I'm not saying the Cardinals are lucky. I've been saying they've been t- they the, the statistics belie reality, and that, that it's not going to happen again. And I think the Pirates and the Reds are both better than the Cardinals this year. But it doesn't mean the Cardinals aren't going to win it. They, they have a great organization. And the thing the Cardinals keep doing, they keep bringing up great young pitching. And that is going to put them in, in, in great positions over the next five or ten years because they have that great pitching coming out of their, pitch, uh, their minor league system. And somebody in their draft organization uh, has really done a great job in locating talent and signing it. Well, TribeFan1995 asks us, a, actually an Indians question on our Ask Us segment tonight, will Jason Kubel make a difference for the Tribe chances? Um, if this was the Jason Kubel of two years ago, I would say, yeah, he was exactly the guy that they needed. He's a cleanup hitter that was averaging 25 to 30 home runs and 90 RBIs a year, and that's exactly what they would need a cleanup. But in all honesty, Mark, the Jason Kubel that has played this year and seems to have problems catching up with the fastball the way it looks over the past few days, 
I don't think he's going to be much help to the Indians, and as a matter of fact, I'm not sure he's even going to supplant Drew Stubbs in right field. Yeah, I, I didn't see him being the answer to what the Indians need long term. He might, again, this year fill in. But you need, uh, and you know that roster far better than I do, but I, I look at that roster, and there are four or five holes. Forget your pitching staff. Just on the uh, 12 or 13 players that you have on the bench, you know, on the field, there's a lot of holes in that lineup. And you're going to have to shore that up, but you have to go out there and get a stud. And the team strikes out a lot, as you know, uh, and even though uh, Drew Stubbs is, has gotten better in that area this year, uh, you really need to go out there and package together some young talent and go out there and get a guy who can hit number four and hit 30 home runs next year and drive in 110 runs. You do that, and that team is altogether different. It makes your entire lineup stronger. And it's 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 really interesting uh, what the Reds have done or not done with the cleanup hitter this year. It, it has changed their approach to scoring. Uh, it's gotten Joy Votto into a funk because he hasn't had anybody hitting behind him. Now, Ludwig came back two weeks ago, and you know what? He's hitting 275. He's hit a couple home runs. He's driven in six or seven runs. But that threat with him hitting fourth changes the entire dynamic of that lineup. And that's what the Indians need. They, they just didn't. When you have Swisher hitting number four, that that's not right. That's that's not the right kind of hitter you want there. No, and they've put uh, Santana at number four. I think they're going to move Santana to first place permanently next year. I think he's going to be the first baseman. I, I think they're going to rotate him in and out with with Swisher at DH, and I think they're going to go out. And they're going to find themselves a stud right fielder. And I'm not so sure that Drew Stubbs will be back on the Indians' roster next season. Not because they don't want him, but because of the fact that I think they've got to use that spot to find themselves a, a stud cleanup hitter. It's either that or third base. And I don't see a lot of third basemen that are available out there other than Chase Headley that, that could move into the cleanup spot for how about, the Indians. How about uh, Santana and Stubbs for, for Stanton? Oh, I'd make that deal tomorrow. Yeah, I, I definitely would. Um, you could put Gomes That's a the catcher. Kind of yeah, I mean, Miami could use a catcher. Uh, Stubbs would be great in that outfield down there. Uh, it's two starters you're giving up for a guy that, uh, you know, Giancarlo Stanton has not had a superstar year this year. He's had a pretty good year. He's hit, what, 21 home runs. He's not hitting that high for an average. He got off to a terrible start. So now may be the time to, to craft a deal and go out and get him. But uh, that's what they need. They need a guy who can come in and put him in the four spot, forget about it for the next five years, and go win some games. Yeah, I, I agree. Okay, one more question on our Ask Us segment, Mark. Uh, Reds Fan 14 asks, and this is an interesting question, and it kind of plays into our conversation with Brandon Phillips and and whether or not he used this as an opportunity to light a fire under the team. Reds Fan 14 says, why did Dusty just sit there and laugh while Phillips was yelling at the reporter? Well, as, as Dusty said, I don't know if you heard the interview, he said, hey, this is between you two, not me. And he, he didn't want to get in, into that role, role of an arbiter 
because he can only lose. Uh, if he, he would have reprimanded uh, Brandon, it would have really hurt his relationship with Brandon as if he wasn't supporting him and sticking up for him. And, or he, he would have alienated the press one way or the other by you know sticking up for Brandon. So he was in a position he really couldn't do anything but what he did. I thought what he did was smart, frankly. Okay, you guys figure it out. I'm, you know, I'm out of here. And that's what he did. But that comes with experience of being around this stuff for years. And I think the idea that this kind of galvanized the, the team around Brandon, I think, is true. That clubhouse knows what Brandon's value is to this team. And uh, he, he has really played well this year. And I just wish the Reds, I know this is uh, far-fetched perhaps, but I would put Billy Hamilton at second base. I would move Brandon Phillips, as great as he is, move him to third. He's getting older. He's 32 years old. He's not going to be the player he is for long. Uh, but he, put him at third base, he'll hit 20, 25 home runs, drive in 100 runs, hit him fourth or fifth, or, or even third, uh, or second. doesn't matter where you hit him. But that would get Billy Hamilton into a position in the lineup where hitting 240-250 would be great. And uh, I wish the Reds would consider doing that. Yeah, I want to sneak one more question in here. Considering that it's uh, Joe Morgan weekend for the Reds, they're going to celebrate Joe Morgan's career with the Cincinnati Reds here this weekend. Uh, Sparky Tent snuck this one in on our Twitter account, at OHBB co-host, just here a few minutes ago. And he said, considering that this is Joe Morgan weekend, I would like to know, is there a current Reds player that you guys think would have been a starter on the big red machine? Uh, Good question. Yeah, I mean, I can only think of two, and that would be Votto or Phillips, and you've got Perez and Morgan at those spots. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I, I would think the Reds would have had more value back in 76 by having Morgan than Brandon Phillips because Morgan brought a dimension in speed. I mean, he, he, he could steal you 70, 80 bases a year. And, and don't forget, he was taking number three and MVP twice. So, yeah, I would, I would take Joe Morgan on that team over Brandon Phillips. Now, Joey Votto and Tony Perez – Statistically, if you just look at the at the raw numbers, you'd say that that Joey Votto, uh, in the in the years he has played, has had as good or better years, average wise certainly, uh, than Tony. But Tony, again, he had a role on this team. He hit fifth, and he drove in. He was hitting behind Joe Morgan and Johnny Bench, hitting fifth, and he still drove in 120 runs a year. Now that tells you the guy was picking up a lot of RBIs uh, after the, the bases have been cleared by Morgan and Bench. So I'm not sure that I can think of one player that would be on the Reds now that would be on the on the big red machine. Yeah, I, I'm pitching, kind of now, at a loss. If you talk well, about think, pitching, yeah, there's a lot. of yeah, The pitching staff, this pitching staff's much better than the 76 and 75 Reds. Yeah, Definitely. I mean, Chapman would probably be the closer. Well, if if you put the Reds pitching of this year on the seventy five on the seventy five Reds, they might go undefeated, <laughs> <laughs> or or break at least the record for most yeah, wins in I mean, a season. Imagine, imagine that team with this pitching staff. 
with Cueto Healthy, with Latos, with Bailey, Arroyo, uh, and then Chapman in the bullpen. My God. Mark team averaged five or six runs a game. Imagine that pitching staff. Imagine that pitching staff with Bench catching them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And calling the pitches. Yeah, it it would be an all timer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they might they might be, you know, but hey, that if and nuts were candy and nuts. Anyway, or some something of that. And what what are the Reds got coming up the rest of this week, Mark? They have their toughest stretch of the year that they they've embarked on starting today. Uh they got uh four games of the Cardinals to finish up this week. <clears throat> and then this weekend they had the Dodgers coming in. Now, I predicted in my own brain if the Reds can win 3 games of these next 7 they're going to win the wild card, without question. If they win more than that, they, they may have a chance for the division. Because after this, they, they have a pretty easy stretch of it to the end of the year. Well, and St. Louis has got not only the Reds, but they've got Pittsburgh this weekend. They yeah, they sure do. And uh, they have a rough schedule. But, again, once this is over for them, uh, they, they they have a pretty easy schedule. Uh, the rest of the year, and and the, and the Pirates actually have the easiest schedule uh, of all. Uh, I take that back. I think the Cardinals have the easiest schedule because uh, they got lots of games against. They got three against the Cubs, the Nats, the Rockies, uh, the Mariners, the Brewers. So if the Cardinals get through the next six games, they're in pretty good shape too. Well, and the Indians, they have Baltimore coming up tomorrow and Wednesday. Then they're off Thursday, and they've got that juggernaut called the New York Mets coming in this weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, without Matt Harvey. Mark, we're going to see where we're at next Monday night. It can only be better, Dave, so keep keep your chin up. That's for certain. Okay, Mark, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you next week. Take care. Don't forget to join us on Thursday night with the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. We'll be back next Monday night to talk to you about the Cincinnati Reds and the Cleveland Indians. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer, and also to you for listening. I'm Dave Mitchell for Mark Donahue. Until next Monday night at 9 o'clock, have a good week, everybody. Good night.